to the Weekly Defence Podcast, the show about defence procurement, military technology and the industry that gets the kit into the hands of the warfighter. We are brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, NAMO. I'm your host, Helen Haxel, Air Domain Editor here at Shepherd Media, and I'm coming to you from our global headquarters in a hot and sunny West London. On the show this week, we'll be covering Aero India in Bangalore last week, outlining all the military procurement news that emerged from the show. We speak to North Star Aviation about the company's 407 MRH light attack helicopter and how they've been a disruptor in this segment of the market. And our sponsor, NAMO, provides this week's Industry Voice segment. But first, our weekly news roundup, and I'm here with Beth Maundrell, Deputy Editor Land. Hi, Helen. And I'm joined by Tim Martin, our air reporter. Hi, Helen. To talk about what's caught their eye this week. Now, our Editor-in-Chief, Richard Thomas, is at an industry event. But Beth, you're going to be picking up the high seas today. Yeah, so I have covered the naval domain in the past, so I'm going to attempt to dip my toes back into those waters. <laughs> um, and um, the really one of the news pieces that I wanted to pick out um, concerns uh, BAE Systems' release of its annual results. Um, now, as we all know, the company has a large presence right here in the UK um, in the naval mm-hmm. sector. And um, the report, the annual uh, results reported that in terms of the run of five batch two river OPVs, the company has created an almost £50 million in lost provisions for the build because of issues that have kind of surrounded that. Um, a BAE system spokesperson um, told Shepard that the lost provision was for the programme as a whole rather than for any issues to any specific vessel. But they did say that part of the problems found with HMS 4th, um, which we have reported on in the past, were down to the vessel being the first in class. Beth, has there been any other news floating around, perhaps on less choppier waters? Um, Yeah, so obviously BAE Systems were keen to highlight the uh, successes in the naval domain um, and obviously talked about the Type 26 design, which has seen export success um, with both Australia and Canada, as well as being built here in the UK. Tim? As you're aware, I was at Aero India last week. So what were the kind of main headlines that took your attention? Yeah, leading the Erdex desk coverage uh, this week are two stories, really, mm. both of which concern the US Army. Uh, and on the fir- beginning with um, the FARA programme, which is the future right. attack reconnaissance aircraft, Airbus have uh, officially confirmed that, that they've filed a, a proposal with the Army uh, and the technology involved will be um, based on its its X3. So they won't actually say um, officially what the platform is that they're proposing and that's really down to the highly competitive nature of, of the, the tender. So, but what are they not revealing? Um, so that they won't actually reveal or name uh, an aircraft that they're they're proposing. So they'll only say that it's technology from the high speed demonstrator, the X three. And um, now that's actually fits in well with other mm. um, industry competitors who are um, 
using a similar tact, they won't say um, what they're going to propose either. Um, but we will find out a little bit more uh, when uh, in July 2019, the Army issues between six to eight contracts um, for initial design review um, to industry. And beyond that, then there'll be a fly off um, between um, two aircraft. So I guess it's kind of uh, stay tuned at this stage. In that stay one. tuned indeed. And was there any other kind of stories that interested you last week? Or yep, so week? The, the other US Army-led uh, program uh, that was a focus this week mm. uh, was on ITEP, which is the Improved Turbine Engine Program. So the Army, on the 1st of February, issued a contract to General Electric, giving them a development uh, contract for for the wider ITEP program, um, now that that effectively um, gives General Electric um, the right to uh, further develop um, their T nine hundred one prototype, which um, has been slated uh, for the ITEP program. Um, and ITEP is a as as I say a wider program that looks to um, replace the T seven hundred that's used in the Black Hawk and Apache helicopters. And so it'll be uh, an increase of 50% power uh, once fielded. So there's a, there's a long way, again, on that journey. Yeah, but I feel like we've been waiting for this announcement for a while or... Yeah, so uh, initially it had been uh, a target of the US Army um, to uh, to provide a contract to, to industry for mm-hmm. manufacturing and development in December. Um, so this contract is, is about a month late or was oh, a month okay. right. late at the time. Uh, but ATEC, who are a competitor with General Electric for uh, the, the manufacturing contract, and they filed a protest uh, in uh, in earlier in February um, to dispute the award of of the contract itself, mm-hmm. meaning that the the government accountability office now have a hundred calendar days within which they have to resolve the the, the protest. And um, so again, by the by the thirtieth of May we'll find out whether the GAO are going to side with General Electric and effectively the US Army's decision, initial t- decision will be rubber stamped or whether actually the, the, they see a case um, in the ATEC protest. And if they do, you could read from that that um, they'll have recognised a, a legal case for uh, ATEC to um, to win out the, or to win the, the contract, uh, which would suggest that the Army's original decision was wrong and that uh, it wouldn't represent best value for the Army to go along with General Electric. So this could be going on for quite some time, Tim. Yes, yeah, certainly. It it really does bring bring about um, the possibility of um, uh, legal ramifications and, and long-running legal saga. You'll keep us posted. Absolutely. Beth, familiar land for you? Any big stories? Um, yeah, so back on the land domain for me, um, after a week at IDEX, which consisted of predominantly wheeled vehicles, uh, which you can hear about in last week's podcast, um, this week I wanted to take a look at some tracked platforms. Um, now, over the past few days in the land domain, there's been a lot going on with various armoured vehicle platforms, including the latest developments in Russia uh, with the new T90M main battle tank, which is almost at the end of state testing uh, before it reaches serial production. Mm. 
Um, in other news, the Indian Army has accepted an updated version of the Arjun tank, um, which is an upgraded variant of what's already in service. Now, what's interesting here is that this tank, um, which is known as the Arjun Mark 1A, is just an interim variant um, before a fully modernised Mark II version is certified. Um, however, at the moment, there's still work underway to reduce the weight of the Mark II variant. Do we know by how much, Beth? Or... I don't know how much they're aiming to shave off the weight. However, the um, Mark II variant had come in at a whopping 68.6 tonnes, which, of course, is a lot for a tank if you want any kind of manoeuvrability or speed. Um, and a lot of the weight has been added because of modernization and upgrade packages and new sensors new new stuff that's been added to the tank and was there any headlines from across the pond beth um yeah i did want to pick up on a recent milestone for a u.s program and the u.s army which is replacing the vietnam era m113 um provided BAE Systems with a contract for the start of low-rate production of its armoured multi-purpose vehicle known as the AMPV. Now, obviously, this signifies that the US programme is now in full swing, but we have to consider that the M113 has a huge amount of international customers from thousands sold in Germany and, calendar, uh, and Canada <laughs> to a few... Um, of the vehicles which were sold to the likes of Jordan and other countries within the Middle East. Um, now, back at IDEX, I did speak to a BAE Systems uh, spokesperson um, who said that there's definitely export potential for the AMPV to be sold into the Middle East, um, especially if you consider the commonality of the platform with the latest iterations of other vehicles um, which are in service with a lot of different um, international customers. Um, and these vehicles would be the M109 self-propelled howitzer and the Bradley infantry fighting vehicle. So as long as the US program keeps going well, I think they'll be looking to tap into that export market very soon. For these stories and more, please visit our website, shepherdmedia.com. <laughs> We wanted to take a short break into the podcast to tell you about Shepherd Studio. Studio is our branded content offering, which gives industry a more creative way to tell their stories. Shepherd Studio works closely with companies and event organisers across the aerospace and defence industry to provide bespoke co-branded solutions. Whether it is support of a particular campaign, content surrounding a major trade show or bringing studio on board to more effectively tell a company story. Studio has already been adopted by many of the major defence primes. If you're interested in learning more about studio projects and how they could benefit your company, please contact us at www.shepherd.studio. So welcome back to the Weekly Defence podcast. I'm Tony Skinner, VP of Content here at Ship Media, and I'm here with Helen, who was at Aero India in Bangalore last week, which was certainly eventful. Uh, we saw the tragedy of an aircraft crash during the preparations for the show, and then right at the end of the show, we saw a, a car park, fire, quite a major car park fire. But Hel Helen, 
how was the week for you? As you said, Tony, dark clouds did loom over the beginning of the 12th edition of Aero India at the Yella Anchor Air Force Base in Bangalore following the mid-air collision of two Surya Kiran aircrafts on the 19th of February that were doing a demonstration for the flight display before the show started. Um, one pilot dead, as we mentioned, and two were injured. And naturally, as we work in quite a small uh, defence community, this had an undercurrent and rippled through, sadly, with a sombre tone starting the show. Yeah, so I guess some of our colleagues, you know, knew the the, the pilot Absolutely, sort of personally. Yeah. So, yeah, tragic way to sort of start the show, but sort of just to move things, I guess, onto the back onto the business sort of sphere. Um, were there any kind of underlying themes that dominated the show? Um, yeah, absolutely. I guess kind of the two major themes were political and financial. This is an election year, Tony, for India. We're expecting the uh, government elections to take place this year in the April-May timeframe. And that perhaps dictated the fact that there wasn't or that this wasn't a major orders show. Uh, perhaps international companies are a little bit reluctant to buy or reluctant to invest until the government's stability is known later this year. Um, financially as well, if we think about one of the major topics with um, with New Delhi is the Made in India initiative, mm -hmm. which focuses on manufacturing needs being within the country um, Naturally, there was a major, major international and global presence and with more than 60 aircraft on display. However, when speaking to co foreign companies on the show floor, there seems to be this um, culture uh, dictated in India of a, a culture of you now, us later, in the sense that India's so keen to get all this high technology, all this good capability, and they want it so they can do it themselves. Mm -hmm. But they want it now. And obviously, aerospace and defence, um, it takes a while. It takes decades. Um, so it's not putting off international companies, this kind of bureaucracy, this red tape, um, this different culture, because India is the fifth largest um, uh Sorry, it, India has the fifth largest defence budget in the world. So naturally, everyone wants a piece of this kind of Indian pie, so mm. to speak. But I guess um, all is kind of dependent on the new government, like I said, who's going to remain in power, who may be coming in next. And I guess recent events involving Pakistan, which has escalated more this week, might push this more onto the sure. agenda. Yeah, I guess it's, it's been a bit of a theme with Western companies doing business in India that yeah, exactly. there's a lot of cynicism from the executives about, you know, how long business takes. But the size of the requirements and the size of the yeah. country means that they are they are all at the air shows, they are at the trade shows, you know, they are obviously chasing this business pretty hard. But just to turn on the domestic front, you know, that nurturing that kind of domestic capability. Yeah. There's Hindustan Aeronautics Limited, so how... Um, that's the Indian government-owned aerospace and defence company. They usually have quite a big presence at the show, and I guess this year would be would have been no exception. 
Absolutely, Tony. They had their platforms on display. Um, I attended the HAL press briefing during the week at Aero India and um, perhaps I'm very naive, um, but it was a press, brief, a press briefing of pandemonium standards. Uh, people were very excitable and grabbing the mic and shouting over each other. It was, oh, it was brilliant to watch. <laughs> it was quite the theatre. Sure. Um, but yes, in, in, in seriousness, bef- before the show, the Indian MOD launched an expression of interest for a joint venture on the purchase of 111 naval utility helicopters. Um, but Hal was rather tight-lipped about this programme, despite demonstrating its advanced light helicopter for shipborne use. Now, they were very keen to tell me on the show floor that this was this was a new concept. This was a new concept to be shown at Aero India. The platform had been on display before, but it was just this shipborne use concept that they're hoping will meet naval requirements. Now, when I was at the show, they provided me with a demonstration of this with the folded tail boom, and they also showed the stowage, um, which is an additional customization which um, would be perfect for the Navy should they mm-hmm. uh, proceed forward with this. Um, but also during the week at the show, in relation to how the Indian Air Force received its final operational clearance for its light combat aircraft, the MK-1 Tejas jet. Um, (laughs) It was quite funny. Um, They were obviously pleased to receive the MK-1, the Air Force, but again, speaking with kind of colleagues in the press room, they're more focused on the MK-1A or the MK-2. Mm-hmm. They're much more excited about the next iterations of that aircraft. Sure. So it's quite interesting. It's been quite a problematic program since the early 1980s. Um, but I did manage to speak to the chair and MD of HAL, amongst all the furore, about the MK1A being an export aircraft. He wouldn't give too much away to me. He did confirm that they were looking at countries within the Asia-Pacific region. But as he said, we cannot declare now. However, again, speaking with colleagues and the fact that the aircraft's going to be making its debut at Lima 2019 and then Kawi, Malaysia, perhaps they're one of the countries that could be exported to. Sure. And I guess Lima's only in a few months, so we'll we'll have to task our ASPAC editor, Gordon Arthur, to go and chase that one on our behalf. So... Um, I guess elsewhere, we, we, we know that India's got a, a mixed fleet um, of fixed-wing fighter aircraft, um, you know, a mix of Soviet and sort of Western types, mm-hmm. um, and they are looking to sort of replace those, you know, with uh, various single and twin-engine sort of jet programmes. Was there any update on, on this front? Well, absolutely, Tony. I mean, the RFI by the Indian MOD, which was released in July last year, stated the procurement of another similar number to the helicopters, but 110 fighter aircraft, with 75% of these aircraft single-seat and the rest twin-seat aircraft. And again, going back to that theme of made in India, 85% share of the aircraft will be built in-country to replace those legacy platforms, Tony, that you um, alluded to. Now, two of the main contenders, there's naturally going to be others perhaps putting their hats into the ring at a later date, are Lockheed Martin with the F-21. Now, there's a debate on the uniqueness of that aircraft and whether it's um, 
uh, excuse the pun, but a jumped up F-16. That's for you to decide. And Boeing will also be putting forward its Super Hornet for the carrier airborne fighter programme. And Beyond's helicopters and, and fighters, all the stuff that you love. Um, anything <laughs> yes. else of note on the show floor? Oh, there was one thing as a sidebar, Tony, if you'll uh, indulge me once again on this podcast. Um, there was monkeys in the ceiling. Apparently this has happened before. So, uh-huh. um, yeah, so let's just say I had to wear my lovely red press hat for fear of being rained on by these uh, cheeky monkeys, so to speak. Uh, but to keep my editor-in-chief happy, who's also our C-Domain editor, I did get to speak to Tim Johnson, who works at the UK government's Department for International Trade. Now, he was informing me on the show floor about t- conversations between New Delhi and London on sharing tales of the high seas about the two countries' aircraft carrier futures. Um, both have kind of been affected by rising budgets. Um, but he was he was keen to emphasise to me that the two countries were sharing um, lessons learned and practicalities and whether the lessons that have learned are manufacturing or design, can the UK help with those manufacturing capabilities? Can India help with those manufacturing capabilities? So they're progressing those chats along. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing concrete as such at this stage, but yes, discussions are being made. So for more on helicopter replacements, fighter aircraft programmes and yeah, the possibility of the UK and India working a bit uh, closely, more closely together on their Indigenous aircraft carrier programmes, yes. please do see our website. I'm here with Matt Smith, our Director of Analysis at Shepherd Media. Hi, Matt. Hi, Helen. Matt, you and your team have been working tirelessly on the Shepherd Plus Business Intelligence Service. So what can we expect from Shepherd Plus in 2019 in terms of further developments or upgrades to the system? So our database provides information on who is buying which military equipment. That's the core of it. Each record contains information on order and delivery numbers, unit costs and product attributes. Our clients use Shepherd Plus really to identify market opportunities, to track and assess their competitors and benchmark their own analysis. So we're shortly going to add a naval warfare module and we plan to expand our coverage further and to include combat aircraft. We're also developing a programs module which will cover unawarded procurement programs. Uh, the idea behind this is to give uh, more insight into what's going on in the future with equipment programs. Um, and our first program forecast will cover military vehicles and we expect that to have, to have that ready in March. One stop plus shop. Exactly, yes. <laughs> so thanks for giving us that um, overview of the Plus Intelligence tool. If you want further information on this, please email plus at shepherdmedia.com or visit our website. I'm back with Tony Skinner, Shepherd Media's VP for content. Now, Tony, like myself, you've been on the road recently and have come across a good helicopter story for us. So that's right, Helen. Um, while you're away in India, uh, we a lot of us were at the IDX exhibition in Abu Dhabi. Um, for me, it was my first time at that show, which is an you know, exhibition that's more or less dedicated to land forces, although there's also a strong naval element, element as well. 
you will be pleased to hear that I did manage to find the only helicopter on the show floor. Yay! Um, <laughs> and this was the North Star Aviation 407 MRH light attack helicopter. Um, I had a good chat with them about the overall status of the program. Um, we, sure. We're going to hear that audio from that interview in a minute. Um, I think it's worth sort of setting the scene a little bit. I think this is an interesting story. Um, as North Stars sold 30 of the aircraft, um, which is a weaponized Bell 407, mm. um, to the UAE forces, they are operated by the UAE's new Joint Aviation Commands. Right. All, all those aircraft have now been delivered. Which is, yeah, for, for personally, it's, for me, it's quite a, an interesting development, um, given, I guess, we first came across North Star um, and the 407 MRH at Quad A in 2013, hmm. um, which was around about the time they got the contract originally with the UAE, you know, for the 30 aircraft. Um, and it also, yeah, the, it, it emerged at a time when um, armed helicopters, which were based on commercial airframes sure. and then obviously, you know, weaponized we're kind of all the rage. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there were, there were a lot of the OEMs were offering weaponized variants of their commercial platforms. Um, there were a number of companies that were offering these kind of reconfigurable weapon stations that mm. could be added to existing fleets. Yeah, and we saw kind of at various regional trade shows, we saw sales drives, um, you know, into places like South America, the Middle East, you know, parts of Asia, really. Like you said, we've been covering this kind of for nearly five, six years, but didn't Bell have their own 407 GT around at this time? Yeah, so I guess that that was launched the same year. That was 2013 right. um, with a lot of fanfare at Halley Expo that year. Oh. They launched the 407 GT, which was a you know weaponised platform. It was reconfigurable. Um, you know, and they, they have seen some success with, you know, mm. an armed variants of the 407 um, aircraft has, has bought the aircraft. Has sorry, Iraq has bought the aircraft. Right. Yeah, and, and a, there was a modification. Sort of, I think in October last year, where Iraq was looking for some replacement to those aircraft um, for to replace combat loss sure. losses, um, and they were particularly looking for I think five armed Bell four hundred seven GX helicopters, which would be contracted directly with with Bell, mm -hmm. um, based on the notification. However, I guess with the North Star Aviation success, yeah. what we have seen is that the, the 407 GT is no longer being marketed by Bell. So and yeah, so in, in both companies, when I spoke to them at IDEX, sort of agree that any sort of solution or any offering by Bell helicopter itself would be in partnership with North Star. Hmm. Um, indeed, at IDEX, they, they're right next to each other on the show floor, which kind of indicates oh, that wow. the level of that partnership. I mean, it is an interesting time for both companies kind of in the segments. I think militaries are starting to consider where perhaps in the past they might not have mm. um, a civil helicopter, you know, as a military platform. Yeah, so the North Star offering is starting to generate a lot of a lot of interest and, and that kind of solution is, is get, gaining greater credibility, really. Tony, we've got your audio coming up now um, with the interview, but I just wondered what's kind of next for North Star? What else could you kind of get out of them? So they are developing a weaponized version of the Bell 429 um, for that kind of heavier mission set, um, which itself has attracted a lot of interest. They're also quite bullish about the Australian requirements for a, well, it's a special forces platform um, for, you know, ISR, armed reconnaissance sort of missions. Yeah, I spoke to at IDEX, I spoke to Lyle Becker, who's VP of Operations at Northstar, about that Australian requirement. Yeah. Yeah, as he sort of explains, you know, the Australia is looking for 
an off-the-shelf solution, but an aircraft that has been in service. So, yeah, so he's he's relatively confident that, you know, they're offering. Um, but, yeah, to start off with, I sort of asked what's been happening since 2013 when I first come across the, the aircraft itself. Well, in these last five years, we have uh, delivered 30 aircraft to the UAE Armed Forces, every one of them on time, on budget. They're in operation within their fleet. Their pilots are getting trained up. They're performing their missions, and uh, they're behaving very well. Reliability uh, runs at over 90%, and uh, they're very happy with them. They're very effective. They're very cost-effective and lethal. And, and, and why, why did they look originally at a, at a solution like this? Um, I mean, at the time, it was, it was more of a unique package, I guess, for a company to take a commercial off-the-shelf aircraft and weaponize it in this way. It is a unique uh, situation because uh, right now there are no light attack helicopters within uh, military inventory. So your options are much heavier, much more expensive, and much more expensive to operate uh, platforms. These are very cost effective and they, uh, you not only get the benefit of a lower entry price point, but continued operation uh, is much more cost effective because it works off the commercial network. So parts are readily available, training is readily available, and they're easy to fly. The support is there. So it, 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 it's a great mix of both commercial into a military platform that makes for something very effective. And, and you guys have done all the integration work yourself. We did. Um, you know, can you talk us through some of the aspects of the package itself, I mean, in terms of the EOIR fits? Certainly. And the weaponization of the aircraft? Certainly. We, uh, we start off with what the customer's requirements are. And what is it that they want to do? And we try to build a package based on what they want to do. In this particular case, they wanted to have capabilities for laser-guided munitions. They had a certain standoff requirement. They had some other uh, mission sets that they wanted to accomplish. So taking all that into account, we searched the market and found partners that had the right equipment, to meet their requirements and put it all together into one integrated package. The uh, uh, design of the aircraft went to a very small group of companies uh, that all worked very closely together. And the result was a, a very short time for engineering and testing and pretty fast deployment to the customer with something that meets their requirements and is reliable today. And, and specifically, can you sort of uh, outline what the subsystems are? Certainly. Um, and, and who, who are this particular about? aircraft, we, uh, uh, we, we start off with a uh, uh, laser-guided EOIR sensor. This is a FLIR 380 HLD. On this particular aircraft, we have a uh, weapons management system that will uh, support both the M134, the uh, GAO-19 50 cal Gatling gun, uh, the uh, uh, 2.75-inch rockets, and Hellfire. We've also uh, been able to successfully uh, uh, field uh, laser-guided uh, 2.75-inch rockets in different types. So that is the offensive package that they have. Beyond that, uh, we have the various uh, communications, navigation requirements that they have specific to their, uh, uh, their military needs and a mission management system that allows them to uh, fully plan their mission in advance, upload it, carry out their mission, 
and record it and bring it back to their operations center at the end of their mission for debrief. So 30 aircraft, the UAE, um, 30 aircraft. that's all up and running, and you know, sounds like you're getting some good feedback on that. Yes. Um, who else are you talking to? Um, you know, how, how big a requirement is this likely to be for you guys in the we, future? We think it's a great uh, option for company or countries within this region. Uh, it's, it, again, it's very cost-effective. It's easy to fly. Uh, it gives them what they need, and we can do it in a timely manner. Uh, we are speaking with other countries in the region uh, regarding fielding of uh, this aircraft, and we're getting a lot of positive feedback. We're working very closely with Bell Helicopter uh, regarding that as well. Uh, in addition, we're in the process of putting together a, uh, uh, an upgrade program for this. Uh, you could call it a B model uh, that'll allow us to increase our capabilities, reduce weight, and... Uh, uh, be more fieldable down the road. And Australia, there is an RFI for special. There is an RFI. There is an um, RFI you guys in Australia. Did that at some point? Um, yes, we have. We have responded to the RFI in Australia. The land forces, uh, we uh, have responded to it. it. One of the requirements was that it had to be a commercial off-the-shelf helicopter that is in service. So we feel very comfortable in the position we're in with the aircraft that have been fielded. They've been fielded. Uh, successfully to meet the Australian Land Forces requirement. So we look forward to pursuing that further. Great, and we'll uh, keep an eye on that ourselves. So. All right. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Hi, I'm Tony Skinner, VP of Content here at Shift Media, and welcome to this week's Industry Voice, sponsored by NAMO. I'm joined by Andrew Lunder, who's the SVP of Communications for NAMO. Andrew, your position puts you very much front and centre of, of planning at NAMO. From a wider industry point of view, you know, what should people have on their radars for 2019? Uh, hi, Tony. Uh, I think there's uh, maybe two things that uh, I believe will be dominating over the next year. And on one side, it's uh, transformation, continued I mean, that's always the nature uh, in the defense industry, but I think even more so, we're seeing uh, countries returning to symmetric warfare as the primary concern after some 15, 20 years in uh, low-intensity operations in various parts of the world, but without any significant budget boost in most cases. So they're looking for technologies, looking for systems, looking for products that can help boost the their symmetric warfare capabilities uh, within the kind of budget framework they have already. And industry is very much adapting to that. And there are concerns around questions such as uh, security supply, uh, supply chain management, and so on. That's also coming in here. But that that's one side of it. But then the other side, there's also tremendous uncertainty, I think, that's going to be a, a part of uh, almost every story in 2019. So the U.S. has had... Uh, two years of actually having a budget now for on defense, and that is has definitely offered uh, some stability, much needed stability and progress in several programs. But now uh, there's of course the concern that political situation will spill over into renewed budget uncertainty in the U.S. and what that's going to mean for industry. And then of course we have what's going on in Europe. We have concerns about. Uh, Brexit and British industry and the the long-term effects of a potential Brexit for uh, British defense industry, which is 
one of the largest and most important in Europe. Uh, we have uh, questions of Franco-German cooperation. We have concerns regarding the future in the Middle East. Uh, there is uh, Southeast Asia. So there's there's just tremendous uncertainty, I think, as well. And a lot of companies are looking long and hard on strategies and products and how are they, what exposure they have to these questions. And from a, a wider sort of technology trends point of view, you know, how do you, which, which sort of technologies or new capabilities do you really see shaping the market for 2019? Mm. I think it's... Uh, with uh, return to symmetric warfare, you're also returning to some of the more traditional priorities. Uh, you're back to range, precision, uh, protection, mobility. Uh, those are the things that are going to affect it. So it's going to be questions of uh, range, new propulsion systems. Precision will mean everything from detection to target identification, guidance. Uh, that's going to be key. And then on mobility, it's going to be a question of weight. Uh, it's going to be a question of uh, ability to defeat armor. Uh, and it's going to be a, that eternal battle between armor protection, armor penetration, uh, with more active defense systems coming out to protect lighter platforms or to maybe uh, to uh, balance the need for more armor because it will always be affecting mobility. But then vice versa, uh, systems that can defeat that kind, of, that kind of arm protection. So you have all these things that are going on. I think you've seen uh, some of the coverage uh, that Shepard had from uh, Eurosatory last year. Uh, we saw the uh, new armored vehicles that came out there. You saw the armored vehicles that came out at AUSA. Uh, you have the uh, uh, mobile protective firepower in the U.S. Uh, I think those programs are in many ways indicative of where the market is heading. So plenty to be looking out for as we move into the uh, the trade trade show circuits for for 2019. Um, thanks for your time, Enzer, and that's been this week's industry voice. This episode of Shepherd's Weekly Defence Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor Namo. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please head over to shepherdmedia.com to access all our news stories and subscriber content. We'd love to hear what you thought of the podcast, so please do subscribe, rate and give a review on iTunes or other podcasting platforms. Thanks for listening.